logic. How's it go? If it quacks like a duck and if it walks like a duck, then it must be a duck. It's kind of, it would make sense, right? If it sounds like a duck, if it moves like a duck, it should be a duck. Okay, we're going to try something here today, right? I'm going to make a sound and I want you guys to tell me what you think it is. Is that a duck? Okay. You can tell that just because of the sound it makes, right? Okay, let's try another one. Dog? Okay. Oh, isn't it cute? It's a dog. Okay, how about this one? <laughs> Is this silly? Cows. Okay, look at that. Cows. You know what's really funny? When we work on our property up on the corner, the guy who's across the street has cows, and they all come over, and they just sit there and watch me work. I think they're kind of lazy, but, you know, yeah. Okay, so the next sound you're going to hear is a sound that Nick and I heard for the first time just a year or two ago out at our farm. And it was in the middle of the night, and it terrified the two of us, okay? So listen to this sound, and you guys are going to probably have to help out with this one. Hold on, it'll get a little bit louder. Well, it's not that loud. Okay. A gate? No, it's an animal. It's not an owl. It's a mammal. Okay? Anybody know what that sound is? What? Big, big, seriously? Thank you. You know what it is? That's the sound a fox makes. And it did it outside. <laughs> Hold on, you, you, shush. It happened outside, it, middle of the night. It woke us up, and Nick and I were terrified. And I'm like, that's the boogeyman coming for us. That's what, no, that, that's not, I didn't, okay, we didn't say anything like that. We weren't sure. <laughs> If you're confused about what that sound really is, we have a song for you. Does anybody, anybody know this song? Dog goes woof, cat goes meow, bird goes tweet, and mouse goes squeak. Cow goes moo, frog goes have crow. And the elephant goes toot, ducks and quack, and fish go blub, and the seal goes ow, 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 but there's one sound that no one knows. What does the fox say? Is that what the fox says? No. What the fox say? No, not that either. <laughs> Okay. Not that either? Okay. That song goes on forever. It's a song about what the fox says. Come on. It fits. Hey. Somehow. People don't understand how this works up here. Um, 
Okay, so you're asking me, what does any of this have to do with church, right? Yes. Why are we talking about what ducks say and foxes say? So here's the point. Here's what Paul's been trying to tell us and what he's going to drive home today is that the church is supposed to look a certain way. It's supposed to have a walk and it's supposed to have a talk. And if we're not actually being either of those things, if we're not being faithful to what God wants of us, then we can't call ourselves the church. That's what he's going to challenge us with today, is if you want to be the church, then you have to actually pay attention. Okay? That's what we're going to chat about. Now, here's the trick. So I'm going to need you guys to come up forward. I'm actually kicking you guys out this morning because one of the things, some of the stuff we're going to talk about is not age appropriate. Before we, before we release them, though. So, you know, because Miss Sandy said we got to have candy if I have children's sermon. Here's a question I have for you. If it smells like chocolate and if it looks like chocolate, what do you think it is? It's chocolate, except if you're Jeremy and he does Brussels sprouts. Yeah, you guys remember that? That was a bad children's sermon. That was gross, wasn't it? Chloe ate it. Chloe ate it. Where's Chloe? Chloe did eat it. Uh-huh. Chloe. Okay, take a, take a Hershey kiss. Okay, and then I'm going to pray. For, I'm actually going to just send you guys up. You guys follow, follow Miss Nicole. All right? All right. Oh, we're going to need prayer. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all our hearts, that they would be acceptable in your sight. For you alone, Lord, are both our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I did. We kicked the kids out because today's text gets a little, a little rough. And, um, yeah, and a little serious, too. So... We need a little bit of space for this one. So one of the resources that I've been using as I've been unpacking and studying 1 Corinthians entitles this section of the letter, Too Big to Spank, which if you haven't picked up on it, I really like titles, and that title, it was a really good title in my opinion. But I don't like how it fits with our text. As I fought with this text this past week, church discipline isn't really the sense I take away from chapters 5 and chapters 6. It is commonly held, and most people read this section as if it is speaking to church discipline. It is the foundation for excommunicating and for shunning, which if you're not aware of either of those, it's the act of excluding from someone from taking the sacraments or participating in church services. And it's all rooted in this idea, you have sinned, so you are no longer welcome. It's interesting because Linda came to me this past fall. A woman in the bundle babies was struggling with this. She hadn't taken communion in the Catholic church for years and years because basically they said to her, you're not worthy to take communion anymore because something you did in your life excludes you from participating anymore. Okay? So here's where we're going. Paul's going to encourage discipline, but it's only in this one situation that he will do so with such a strong stance. And it's only in regards to one particular individual. 
You know, discipline in the church is something that I have wrestled with ever since I have started working for the church. Probably even before that. Some churches love the idea of discipline, and they are willing to call out all sorts of issues. And to be honest with you, church discipline is why I did not grow up in the church. So here's what happened. When I was very young, my parents started attending a Baptist church. And that was until some individuals from that church came up to my dad and said he needed to shave. Okay, so... My dad's always had a beard. As long as I have known him, he's had a beard. I think he was born with a beard, which is why we don't have any pictures of him as a kid. The idea that he had to shave to be a part of the church didn't make any sense to him. And let's be honest, it's not for biblical reasons. There's no place in the Bible that says men need to shave if you're coming to the church. It's actually interesting. I did a little bit of looking into this this past week. Here's what St. Clement of Alexandria said. This is from the second century. He said, for one who is a man to comb himself and shave himself with a razor, for the sake of fine effect, to range his hair at the looking glass, to shave his cheeks, to pluck hairs out of them and smooth them, how womanly. And in truth, unless you saw them naked, you would suppose them a woman. So much for wanting to look good. Yeah. Or in the 4th century, St. Augustine says this. He says, the beard signifies the courageous. The beard distinguishes the grown men, the earnest, the active, the vigorous. So that when we describe such, we say, he is a bearded man. That's what they say. Yeah, I don't know what that means for me because this is about all I got. I really can't do a whole lot more than this. I also think it's why I'm so envious of Jacob because Jacob's a bearded man if you've seen one. Here's the thing. Facial hair is not, there's no injunction against it or for it in the Bible. But the idea is, is that that particular church was more concerned about my dad's facial hair than about the salvation of our family. And they let us just walk away. And that's what he did. So I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't spend any time in it. I think the topic of church discipline raises some great questions. You know, what is the purpose of discipline? When do we discipline? Do we do it through hearsay or gossip? Do we look to tradition and culture to discern what is appropriate? They're all great questions, but I don't think any of which Paul is actually, well, Paul is going to address a few of those. But I think one of the things that makes this really hard for us is this passage that we found in, find in Romans, where Paul is going to say this. He's going to say, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You know, when you read Paul's various letters, when you're trying to unpack them and figure out what he's actually saying, at times it feels like they actually contradict each other. At times it feels like Paul's wrestling with himself. And so we're going to jump into this letter and see if we can't get a handle on this that is not contradictory to Paul. All right, 
Following the theme of the first four chapters, which we spoke about, just wrapped up, the theme of grow up, Paul in chapter 6, verse 11 is going to say, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And what Paul is saying here is, is there needs to be a difference between who you were and who you are. And he is going to do this by continuing to make a distinction between the ways of the world and the ways of God. Again, his point is, it's time that the church embrace who God called it to be. That, I think, is what Paul's trying to get at here. If we call ourselves the church, then we better walk like the church and we better talk like the church. So you ready? This is going to be a fun text. Let's jump in. Please turn with me, whether it's in your Bible or your pew Bibles, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using our pew Bible, you'll find it on page 871. Okay? So chapter 5, verse 1, begins like this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. You know this passage isn't in the Revised Common Lectionary. If you were in a Methodist church and they follow, or a church that follows the lectionary, they don't, they don't use this passage at all. They've cut it out of the Bible completely. Anyway, verse 2. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Paul says. So in the first four chapters of our letter, Paul has been responding to a report that there has been quarreling and division among those in the church in Corinth. And his response to this was, grow up, stop being so worldly. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, and when he says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. It's not about who you like more, whether that would be Paul or Apollos or Peter, here's the deal. You've been given all three. It's a gift. Give thanks. Stop picking fights and stop fighting amongst yourselves. That was chapters one through four. This week, Paul is going to address a report of sexual immorality. But this isn't your common run-of-the-mill kind of sexual immorality that was prevalent in Corinth. <coughs> which there was a lot in a pagan society like Corinth. No, it's a kind that even those who are worldly do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul's question for the church is, what are you doing? First, there is quarreling and division, and then I am hearing about sexual immorality and as I'm reading this, what I'm wondering is at what point is Paul going to just wash his hands and walk away? At what point as a church leader do you cut and run from the church? I think to those in leadership in the church, Paul is saying never. You never cut and run. You have to stick with it. At times it might get difficult. At times it will be discouraging. But stick it out. Because God is doing something here. 
Verse 3 goes on. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. So as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, this gets good. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Okay. <laughs> That's a little rough. A little confusing too, isn't it? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Is Paul saying that the church should literally hand somebody over to Satan as if he's just waiting outside those doors? You know, with this idea that somehow at the end of his life he might be saved? Does that make any sense? That doesn't seem to work, does it? So what we have to ask is what else could Paul be saying what is Paul saying in other letters that might shine some light into this? So throughout the first four chapters, again, Paul uses the image of flesh versus the spirit to refer to the differences between the world and God. So if we were to turn to chapter 3, verse 1 again, what it says is, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Literally, the Greek reads like this. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh. Paul likes to use this image of flesh and spirit to contrast the way of the world in the way of God. So if we go back to verse 5, I think what he's saying is, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his worldly nature that he might be saved on the day of the Lord, okay? That's what he's getting at, I think, here, which sounds a little bit better. But it still doesn't answer the question of what it means to hand someone over to Satan. So if we turn to Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Paul will say this. He says this on multiple times. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Here's what I think Paul's getting at. Here's what I think he's trying to say to us. Let him go. If he wants to live as if he were a part of the world, then let him go. Let him live the life that he wants to. Let him return to the world and the ruler of it. With the hope that when things get bad enough, when he hits the bottom, which he's going to do, when things fall apart for him, then maybe he will turn back to the Lord and call on the name of Christ. Have you ever heard of a story of some kid smoking cigarettes only to get caught by his father? And then his father takes an entire pack of cigarettes and makes him sit down and smoke the entire pack of cigarettes. Have you ever heard a story like that? Have any of you ever been there? Uh-huh, uh I see you. Um, how does that end? It doesn't end well, does it? No, it's a bad ending. That's what I think Paul is getting at. If you want to live a worldly life, by all means, have at it. But it doesn't end well. And maybe, just maybe, in chasing after the things of this world, when things hit rock bottom, you will turn to God and you will see the truth 
that he has been speaking all along. That's what I see in that little bit of text that's a little tricky to read, I think. Paul really is longing for this man to be saved. He says, kick him out, but that he may only return, that he might find salvation again. But that's the man. Paul's got words for the church as well. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The bigger issue Paul is drawing attention to is the impact of this man's behavior upon the whole church. How his behavior has an impact on the witness of the church. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't get this text, to be honest with you. Somehow the church was boasting. It was prideful of this man and what he was doing. And Paul's point is that the church is meant to reflect the kingdom of God, not the ways of this world. To boast in such a behavior is going to destroy the purpose of the church. So you need to let him go. You need to release him from in your midst. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. You know, as if this whole thing about Satan wasn't enough, this is where it gets really hard in the church, I think. This is where we wrestle. So first Paul is saying, do not be afraid of those who are worldly. In fact, we should expect the world to be worldly. We shouldn't be surprised if those who deny God live worldly lives. We shouldn't be surprised if they sin. Think about this for a moment. If someone is going to deny God, then what would lead them to do anything else? What would cause them to live a godly life? Is that the expectation the church has for sinners? We need to let the world do what the world is doing. And we can't be surprised when the world is literally going to hell in a handbasket. We should expect that. Worldly people are going to be immoral and greedy. greedy. They're going to be swindlers and idolaters. They're going to be all sorts of things that we would struggle with. You know, I've heard this past week, I've talked with a bunch of people. And although I did not watch the Super Bowl, I heard about the halftime show during the Super Bowl. And I heard a lot of complaints about this, a lot of surprise regarding it, with it being very risque. My reaction is, is what do you expect? I expect it to be risque. 
Because it's not something the church sponsors, right? We didn't sponsor the Super Bowl, did we? It's the world, and it's the way the world lives. It should not catch us off guard. Paul's point is the world is going to be the world. It has certain expectations and behaviors. And in addition to those expectations and behaviors, you cannot isolate yourself from it. You can't withdraw from the world. Jesus didn't. He didn't separate himself from the world. It's the whole point of incarnational ministry, that God takes on flesh to work in the midst of a sinful creation. It's the model that we have for ministry. Jesus was constantly being accused of spending his time with tax collectors and sinners because he did. Jesus is going to go so far as to say to the chief priests and the elders, he's going to say, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. That's a harsh word. Because he spent time with them, caring for them, showing them what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. If we remove ourselves from the world, Paul asks this question in Romans, then how will they know? We can't do that. So here's the deal. That, that part actually makes sense to me. I get that because at 25, I was still in the world. It was only because somebody invited me to church that that, that changed for me. Our job is to point those in the world to Jesus. And therefore, to do that, we must remain in the world. And we shouldn't be surprised about what people do in the world. So I'm right with Paul up until verse 11. And this is where for the church, I think it gets a little tricky. So let's look at church, verse 11 one more time. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral. The Greek word here is porneia, okay? And it, is, it has several meanings. It's used to describe those who were male prostitutes or men who were fornicators, basically, meaning anyone who was having sex outside of marriage. Sexual immorality, porneia. And then there's the greedy, which is better translated as those who are covetous. You know, they have an eagerness just to have more and more and more, especially what their neighbor has. They look at their neighbor and say, I want what that guy's got. This is where that whole saying, keeping up with the Joneses, kind of fits in, right? We compare ourselves to others, and we want what they have. Sexually immoral, greedy. Idolaters. An idolater is someone who puts their faith in anything other than God to save them. So if we put our faith in money or medicine or science as if those things can save us, we are bordering on that edge of idolatry. And slanderer. Yeah. This one I think is best understood by Jesus' words in Matthew. When he says, anyone who says you fool will be in the dangers of the fire of hell. A slanderer is someone who is verbally abusive to someone else. A drunkard. Paul's saying drinking is not a sin, but drinking to drunkenness, that's where we have a problem. And then finally, swindlers are someone who steals from others. The word in the Greek has this nuance to it that makes it sound violent, that there's a violence in what they're doing. 
And then Paul's going to conclude with, do not even eat with such people. Okay. So, anybody uncomfortable yet? Anybody tend towards any of these sins? Don't, don't raise your hands. Okay? I know I do. Especially the image of slanderer, right? So, but here's the deal. Throughout college, I spent my summers working on a construction site. And I'm not a Christian. I didn't grow up in the church. And I'm hanging out with these masons, bricklayers. And the way I spoke to other people, <laughs> what I learned through spending time with them, it was rough. It was brutal. I was looking to pick fights with guys I was not nice to women. Before I had come to know Christ, I was a slanderer because the words I spoke destroyed other people. They were harsh. But in coming to know Christ, that changed. And I'm not perfect. <laughs> I am not finished. At times, especially in the car, I can get worked up even today in Christ. I've told you some of those stories. Those are not proud moments. But who I am today in Christ is completely different than who I was prior to Christ. When I was a part of this world, when I lived as if one of this world. If you grew up in the church, I think this is a hard concept for you to wrap your mind around. Because if you grew up in the church, then likely you have always had an eye on God. You have always known what he expects of you. Whether you followed it or you didn't, you knew it there in the back of your mind. The problem is, is that if you grow up outside of the church, outside of Christ... You have no clue that those things are a problem. You don't think twice about the things you do. I didn't think twice about the things I said. I didn't think twice about the women I slept with. I didn't think twice about the big house and the fancy car and the fast motorcycles. I didn't think twice about stealing because I was surrounded by people who stole things. I could tell you stories of what it means to live as one in the world. But what happened was in Christ, I thought twice. In Christ, I no longer lived carelessly. Here's the deal. We all fall short. Even in Christ, there are moments that we are going to struggle. Whereas those who are worldly, there is no struggle at all. There is only what we crave in that moment. So here's what I think we need to take away from this section of chapter 5. Those who are worldly don't actually realize there is anything, with the, anything wrong with the way that they are living. And so if we avoid them, if we isolate ourselves and remove ourselves from their midst, then how will they ever know there is another way to live this life? A way that's actually better. And we have to believe that it is better. For someone who grew up in the world who has come to Christ, my life is so much better. It's not about what I can't do anymore. It's about the fact that I stopped hurting people every time I turned around. Which is what life was like without Christ. But you can't be worldly 
You can't live that life carelessly and claim to know Christ. You can't sin boldly and call yourself a Christian. That's the bottom line. You can't sleep with your father's wife and be proud of it. I'm going to let you in. I'm going to let you in on how this works out for me. What I see the church is to look like and how I have tried to structure our church. Anyone is welcome to walk through those doors. Anyone. Sinner or saint. Because my hope is that by being in our midst, those who are worldly might come to know Christ. By listening to my sermons, if I am being faithful to God, they might actually see God. That if we are being faithful with how we greet and love one another, then they might see Christ's love in our lives. Again, all are welcome to walk in through those doors, to sit in these pews. But I am only going to support those who have turned from the world towards God, those who have repented of being worldly. Those are the ones that we need in leadership. Those are the ones that we invite to take charge in the church. I will not permit a slanderer in a leadership role in our congregation. But I will understand if one of our leaders might slander. I might even go so far if that's a regular thing, if it seems to be something they are just getting comfortable with. I might go so far as to call them out on that. And there's some people I have called out. But all are welcome. Just not all are invited to lead. That's where I set the distinction. When I read this text, that's where I come away from it with. We had this funny situation when the kids were younger. We encouraged our kids to be friends with anybody and everybody they came in contact with. But we also cautioned them that when they did that, that they would never give their hearts, that they would never give away themselves to someone who wasn't a Christian. That we have to keep a little bit of space there. That we have to protect ourselves a little bit. Does that make sense? Do you see the distinction between being in the church and being of the world? I'm going to pause here, and I'm asking that question legitimately. Does anybody have a question about this? Does anybody wrestle with this because the church I think has messed this one up when it tells somebody you know what you got to shave or leave we've got a huge problem but it also isn't saying that you can come as you are and stay as you are the church is meant to encourage people to change to follow God do we have any questions any concerns this is the one time I'm going to give you a chance to say what you want. I'm going to take it away. Won't shut that door. Won't happen again. <laughs> I think it's an important passage for us to wrestle with as a church. Because I think Paul is trying to say, if you claim to be the church, you better be awfully careful about the witness you are bearing. It should point people to God. That's what it should do. Oi. We're going to wrap up here very shortly, but I want to pick up with chapter 6, verse 9, okay? Because I think this is Paul's point. 
Paul is going to say, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those people who claim that as their identity. Because that is what some of you were, he says. Some of you were worldly. Right here. I was. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And actually what's amazing is in the Greek, Paul puts this word Allah, which is but, before each of those statements. He says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Outside of Christ, you were worldly. It is only in Christ that we have been transformed. We're going to have to stop here. We're not going to be able to finish this. There's going to be a part two next week, maybe a part three, a the week after. Because there's just too much left in this passage. But I want you to leave. I want to leave you with this idea. The church is a community of people who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, we cannot live like the world. We cannot continue to be ignorant of the sins in our lives. If we are going to confess that we trust in the name of Jesus Christ, then we really ought to trust in the life that he places before us. The church is not a community that is perfect. Not a single one of us is. But it is a community that is willing to follow the one whose name we bear. Because the kingdom of God won't look anything like this world. And God's invitation is to all that you are welcome to be a part of it from this day into eternity. Or you are free to live the way you would like to. You are free to chase after this world. But the church, the church needs to reflect the kingdom of God. That's Paul's point coming into this. Now, here's the deal. I think, I think that's the easier part of this text. Next week, it gets trickier. Next week, it gets a little rougher with something that I think we actually do wrestle with in the church. I think we get this, what is the world and what is the church. But what Paul's going to say to us next week about judging, <laughs> that's going to get fun. So come back next week, part two.